Ali O'Brien. I am from New York, which is the land of the Muncie Lenape and Lenny Lenape people. I use she, her pronouns. And I met uh, the host of this podcast through a company called Broadway Weekends during the pandemic when we both took theater classes from opposite sides of the world. Yeah, so I'm I'm very far away from you. I'm in I'm in Australia where I moved recently and haven't checked what lands I'm on. I should find that out. That feels like a good thing to know. I used to be in the the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. That's the inner west where I used to live. And now I'm northwest Sydney, so somewhere else. Still in well, Sydney. Yeah, I've moved. Now I live on uh, the lands of my landlord. Um, (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we are here to chat about about ballet, about body expectations for women, and particularly about the Alexandra Waterbury case. I realized that I just forgot her first name, which is not a great start for me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Alexandra is is such a classic ballerina name, though. It really is. Like, she sounds like she should be a ballerina just by her name yeah you hear the name and you're like join a company instantly it's very very posh name and (laughs) yeah well one of balance well balanchine's de facto wife was an alexandra alexandra janilova he had lots of proper wives but this one was just de facto because he left his marriage (laughs) certificate in russia so he couldn't divorce his current wife (laughs) well admin am i right you know sometimes it it be that way (laughs) how to not get divorced just hide your marriage certificate there you go it's so effective save a lot of money on lawyers it's true, you can't divorce me because I don't know where the paperwork is. <laughs> oh. Since we're talking about men, that is, yep, that is. I mean, I have a delightful oh, husband. Right. Um, yes. And we always yes. joke about sawing everything in half if we got divorced, so. So there you go. Equal. <laughs> yep. And then it's and then it doesn't look like such a good idea anymore because what am I going to do with half a computer? <laughs> well, two yeah. halves of a computer, but they're different. So like, <laughs> and is it the top half just the screen and then the keyboard or like? Oh, I was just going to sort straight down the middle. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's just, 
it just doesn't seem like such a good idea anymore. You're like, I guess we just work it out. <laughs> should just stay yeah. married. I feel like that's what you have to do. But yeah, definitely, definitely stay stay married if that's if that's working for you. <laughs> yeah. So off. Let's head off of my relationship into the actual topic. <laughs> okay. Excellent. So you told me that you have some very strong opinions. So let's hear some very I... strong opinions. So, um, basically, um, what really pisses me off is the lack of accountability, mm. particularly in the dance world. Um, for those who don't know about the case, Alexandra Waterbury's ex-boyfriend, Chase Finley, who was a member of the New York City Ballet, she was at the American Ballet School, which is the... Um, the theater school. The theater school for um, for NYCB. And he sent photos that were taken of her um, naked without her consent to another dancer in the company named Amar Ramasar. And I believe and, some board members and donors as well. Um, they're uh, they quite possibly. Or there were messages. Not. There was a message board with a, like a group chat or something. It was it them. was a group chat? So yeah. it was a group chat of several men in New York City ballet, and Chase sent a photo of Alexandra. Um. Mr. Ramasar sent a message um, with a photo of his girlfriend, Alexa Maxwell, in a similar position. Alexa is Although also she... a classic ballerina name. And that's my Off name. Topic, so, but, yeah. but it's a good one. Which is funny because my name is Alexa and my parents almost named me Alexandra. So that's what Ali is short for. For Ale Okay. So my mom's Alex, yeah. but it's short for Allison. So yeah, everyone always thinks it's short for Allison, but it's actually Alexa. Good to know. Uh, so she, um, Alexandra, sued um, both Mr. Finley and um, Mr. Ramasar, and she lost the case at first. Uh, but New York City Ballet um, did suspend him. However, they brought him right back. Yeah. And that uh, Finley, I believe, is still with the company. And Ramasar did leave the company, but he has worked in two shows on Broadway. Yeah, I was going to say, he didn't leave the company to go for some quiet penance. No, no he left the company to do first um, the revival of Carousel in 2018, I want to say, and then the um, West Side Story revival yeah. as Bernardo, which is where the whole... Um, media coverage of this incident took place yeah um because she um 
Miss Waterbury asked people to protest this casting and yeah. to um, work on, uh, against this casting and convince the producer who is the now disgraced Scott Rudin to uh, reconsider this casting. So deep. Like, there's so many layers of it. Exactly. Like, what are we supposed to do when there are layers and layers and layers and layers of mostly men protecting the men who do these things? And, and it, they all do things. Yeah, and it goes, it goes so far back. Like, I have, um, in, in this season and in last season, learned a lot about George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins. Balanchine was the founding choreographer of the New York City Ballet, and then Robbins was the the first resident choreographer they ever brought on. And the both of them have an awful track record of how they treat people. Um, Balanchine is known for such quotes as like, uh, "Stop eating. I want to see collar. I want to see your your bones," and um, "No more babies." I don't remember. No more babies, Allegra. You're not Puerto Rican. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, and I think that goes back to ha men, a lot of men getting involved in part, in this industry to who just view women who dance as figures, not people. It Yeah, it's also there's some difficulty with, be, because there's so few boys in ballet. Right. Like, um, Chloe Angile in her, her book Turning Point talks a bit about this weird privilege and discrimination that boys in ballet face. It's this like privilege within the world of ballet and then at the same time this external bullying and so of they of course they get hurt and then they found a place where they have power and hurt people hurt people right yeah and any men who and i'm sure that men in the ballet world who don't participate in this kind of behavior are treated the same way mm. they're not seen as they're seen as weaker or yeah less than yeah and it is difficult because it is quite a it is viewed as quite a feminine thing to do um and so you, on one level, I can understand, like, trying to reassert masculinity, but I really, I really think it would be better if the masculinity that they were reasserting was a little bit more, like, you know, protecting women kind. That's the kind I yeah. like. Yeah, not, not the, not the extremely toxic masculinity. No, that... not the gross kind that that means that you, you send photos to everyone. Don't do that. 
Yeah, and I wonder if it has if it has something to do with the outside world seeing anyone in any male in the dance world as more feminine, more yeah. weak, yeah, less masculine than and I, like we said, and then that comes into the the culture. Yeah. Yeah. I I absolutely think that. I also think that they're um they're less replaceable than the women are. It, there's there's very few women in the world of ballet who are like viewed as truly irreplaceable. I don't know if you followed what happened with um Catherine Morgan and the Miami City Ballet. But she Okay, so she was a former New York City Ballet soloist. Um she got promoted up very quickly and then got a thyroid condition that made her gain a lot of weight and, and did all kinds of things to her health. So she left for a good number of years and she started a YouTube channel and now she's like YouTube's favorite ballerina. Um, I, I'm sure there's a whole generation of dancers coming up who are in part trained by her. I know I love her classes. Um, and she had gotten her health under control and was decided i think nine years later that it was time to go and try and rejoin a company and she was offered a soloist spot by the miami city ballet and they were talking about the types of roles she would do um, miami city ballet is another balanchine based company so they have a similar rep to new york city ballet um, the artistic director there is actually a woman um, so she goes, she joins the company and then is not put in anything. I think she does one show of Slaughter on, on 10th Avenue um, or, or a handful of shows of that. And the artistic director says to her, I don't know how you can call yourself this big inspiration until you're on stage in point shoes looking like a ballerina. And... For her, she was basically at her lowest healthy weight because if she lost any more weight, her thyroid condition or Hashimoto's disease would flare up again and she'd lose her hair and be totally out of action. But it was this thing, yeah. like even someone who has this really big following in the ballet world, um, someone who can't, her biggest problem with teaching private classes is that they all get booked too quickly and too many people miss out. Like, that kind of person. Yeah, and now that I'm looking, I didn't I didn't recognize the name, but I, I recognize her face. Yeah. Yeah. But that that she's viewed as replaceable. That that she hasn't been offered a contract and then just put in everything. Oh my gosh, that would be such a good financial decision. Yeah. I mean, look at look at what happened since Tyler Peck has taken off. Oh my gosh. That girl is literally everywhere now and mm -hmm. I feel like that's the only way when you when when you turn 42 and retire, that's the only way to keep a stable career going if you haven't 
saved every last scrap of money is to figure out where else you fit and that yeah. name recognition is part of it yeah and and fortunately second careers for dancers are becoming more more able to be talked about in the industry apparently it used to be that if you know um like 20 years ago if you started studying for i believe the mcat is what's called like the medical entrance exam we do stuff differently here um while you were still in the company it looked like you had one foot out the door and you weren't committed whereas now we're like oh you think that between being 42 on the late end and 65 when people retire that you might want a job <laughs> yeah you know people are living longer and longer and longer now like yeah. and my grandpa tried to retire and that lasted all of like two months. <laughs> he very quickly partially unretired. My my father is sixty-seven and is not retiring anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Well there's lots he of jobs that you can do into that into that late later stage of life. It's just that ballet's not one of them. <laughs> exactly. Which is why you need to think, as a dancer, you need to think beyond your career right now. Yeah. You need to think, God forbid, any injury could take it away from you in at any second. Yeah. And you need to be prepared for that. Yeah. We, um, our new artistic director of the Australian Ballet is actually an American, um, guy David Halberg I want to say who had what would have been a career ending injury but then came out here for rehab because shout out Australian Ballet we have really good rehab um out here and now it's looking like he might be back on stage doing which is incredible and that's also a testament I love that because that's also a testament to how much better like the medical industry in general is getting yeah. like we're finding ways to treat things that could never have been treatable before yeah and it and does in years we might be oh my gosh people could be dancing longer although the way it looks they'll be dancing shorter because the work keeps getting more intense yeah, yeah. and we need a lot more regard for health yeah and for like, this idea that that we we should want dancers to have long careers yeah because that there is actually value in age and in experience there is and i think that there are very few cases where we recognize that yeah yeah i mean not not in the world of ballet but my mom is is an artist and a lot of things are like emerging artists up to 35 and she's like well i my mom started like studying art after she'd raised four kids when my youngest sister went to school <laughs> my mom went back to yeah school. like that not everyone starts young and yes like there's that feels like ballet bodies decay like <laughs> 
And that's, that's just, I, I mean, I think that feeds into toxic work culture as a whole. Mm. In, in theater, there are so few roles for women who are older. It's so difficult to raise children in any type of performing industry just because yeah. of the time. And it's one of the few jobs where, yeah, expertise is not valued. Yeah. And time is not valued. Like, I teach reading and... I love working with coworkers who are just a few years from retirement because I can benefit from what they've tried and what's worked and what hasn't. Yeah. Oh, doing Shakespeare plays with like the old guard the is is so so valuable of an experience. Exactly. These plays with people who they've been doing like I've been doing Shakespeare for a really big portion of my life. And I'm not that old. So I might be a Shakespeare expert among 22-year-olds, but these people have been doing Shakespeare since they were 15. Yeah, I just bow down to everyone who... (laughs) Yeah. I've been... I did my first Shakespeare show 11 years ago, Mm. and I have barely scratch the surface <laughs> it's just impossible well what are you gonna be an expert on 36 different plays <laughs> no you need but, the time that it takes to put in that work yeah and and you need input from that other the older generation there's so much value in in the wisdom that that actually comes from spending a lifetime doing something. Yeah. And seeing the changes that come through the times. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm really sad that I we mean... I'm I'm really sad that we don't have like rep companies in the same way that you could just work so hard and do like a play a week (laughs) um i interrupted you (laughs) which is i don't remember what i was gonna say yeah but like the the challenge that is that i feel like is just great Mm. and it's great for creativity it's great for practicing those skills yeah but, but the reason that those existed was because we understood that it takes time to, to form artists. And we have respect. There's yeah. a respect built into the, the world of particularly Shakespeare. Yeah. Older works. There's a value there of and a respect for the people doing it as well yeah. not just a respect for Shakespeare himself but a respect for the scholars yes and for the great actors and for the the tradition um yeah 
And there's also a respect for breaking that tradition. Yeah. But but it's that sort of thing of you need to understand the tradition so you know. Exactly. Yeah, you know how to break it properly. Um, so how do you bring that into something like ballet, which you really can't do forever in the same way that, you know, if someone asked me to do a Shakespeare play one day before I died, I probably would try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I don't know, like I said, I have, my ballet background is, I did it for about six months in kindergarten and then got kicked out because I have ADHD. Oh no! was not, and then I found theater and I was much more comfortable there. Yeah. But, um... We, we got pulled out of dance because my parents at some point realized that we were going to be tall. Um, and that, that, that means a lot of awkward growing and they figured it would probably be better if we didn't do that in front of a mirror in a leotard. That's, that's a great point. Yeah. Because I can't imagine what that would have done to my self-esteem being shorter and, and heavier yeah Uh, and i gained and lost weight and was very un had a very very unhealthy journey with body image Mm. back and forth through school and i can't imagine what that would have looked like had i been in a more toxic environment yeah yeah it's been nice to come to ballet as a as a more formed person um, absolutely so like i have these bad body thoughts but then i'm able to go like ah, i'm actually a person with value um who's loved by the people around me and loved by god so i it fundamentally doesn't matter that much if i <laughs> if my hips right. are wide <laughs> i can't do anything about it i'll work on something I can do something about. And it's like, yeah, but it's so scary when you grow, if you grow up in Mm. a world where starting in kindergarten, like five years old, you're taught that this is the ideal Mm. to get there and be that way and have that type of body. Yeah. And you don't have the life experience to be like, wait a second, that's not the world that yeah, is the real world. And I feel like that must be so disorienting. Mm. And I... when a dancer grows up and they're like, wait, <laughs> this was really toxic. Hmm. Um, a, a massive, a massive experience that my sister had. So my, I'm very tall and my younger sister makes me look short. <laughs> so she is six foot two. That is tall. She is substantially tall. That is a full 13 inch inches taller than me. Yeah. She's the same height as my husband, who is a man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she was very used to hearing 
oh, you're tall. Like this kind of like, what am I going to do with you? And then she went into a basketball thing, a basketball like, I think she was trying out for a team or something. And the coach goes, oh, you're so tall. And it's this total change of perspective. It's like, this is a good thing. <laughs> Which, it, yeah. if, if you play basketball. Sorry, just, short people yeah. who have aspirations of playing basketball. <laughs> could never, could never be me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm on the cusp. I'm on the cusp. I'm just like, not, don't like it enough to <laughs> I don't have the hand-eye coordination. My dad would always say the the reason that he didn't play professional basketball. My dad is six foot six, is that he has small hands, and he can't jump, and he's generally uncoordinated. Well, that'll <laughs> do it. <laughs> that'll do it. He did make a good a good try, but he played a lot of basketball at university. I saw they did just change the height requirements for the Rockettes. Didn't help me, though. <laughs> Still too tall. Still, t they didn't, they brought it down. They didn't bring it up. Oh, I thought they brought it up like an inch, too. Oh, that's no, no, they brought it down an inch. It's so five, ten and a half, I think, is still the cap. Okay. Yeah. So if they... If they bring it up another inch and a half, I'll go be a rocket. <laughs> there you go. There you go. If they bring it down to five zero, and I somehow gain more flexibility in the hip that I have had multiple surgeries on, yeah, I will be a okay. rocket. Yeah, I I don't want to crush your dreams, but I don't think it's gonna happen. Yeah, no. No, but that's okay. That's how I found the theater world and focused more on acting and singing, so... Yeah. And I am able to really actually enjoy dance as a compliment to that. Yeah. Because... because it doesn't matter if I'm the skinniest... Or the most technical, it's like, no, 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 I'm dancing so that when Reno Sweeney or Mary Poppins or one of those, like, song and dance roles comes along, that I'm ready for that. Yeah, that you can, you can, it's, it's just another tool for telling a story. Yeah. And it's really fun. <laughs> it's so much fun. And we lose track of that. And I feel like so many times in the dance world in general we lose sight of the fact that it's it's just telling a story it's just art it's not brain surgery <laughs> that's so true that's so that's true. what Patty Mirren says like anytime there's a mistake or something she's like I'm an actor not a brain surgeon that I love that I I really My love that ups today won't kill anybody yeah, no one dies. And I think I think that is important to remember. Like we we shouldn't break people <laughs> in the process no. of doing this because like if I do a mediocre job, no one dies. 
not that I should want to do a mediocre job, and I, I don't. I want to do a fantastic job, but also, no one's gonna die. <laughs> yeah, no one's perfect. Yeah. No one gives a perfect show every single show. Yeah. So, and I, there's just never any reason for cruelty. Yeah. Yeah. I think Misty Copeland said with ballet, if you're perfect, quit. Because you've yeah. you've got nowhere to go. So just, okay, you did it. Right, like, do you want a medal? Like, if you wanted a medal, like... There's always something perfect. else to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that... Uh, part of the reason that ballet has left main popular culture is that it's become less focused on storytelling. And yeah. This, like, there's only so many times that you can see the same extension, and it's always going to be impressive and gorgeous, but it's only going to shock you once. Right. Like, how do we how do we tell new stories? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's why we view ballet as boring in some mm. cases. Because we know what's going on. That's yeah. why we need more exciting we yeah. need more exciting rep. We need new I, I love comic ballets. Um, diversity and, and and companies that are different. Like I'm I'm looking forward to seeing musical theater ballet companies like, why not yeah do slaughter do do west side do you know because there's the rep exists um it does but i just think we don't see it as much um no and we i mean why not bring back the dream ballet why did we ever get rid of that? But that's a Balanchine invention, actually. Dream ballet yes. musicals. Um, it often gets attributed to Agnes DeMille because she did it in Oklahoma, but Balanchine did it a couple of years earlier. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and bring back stupidly impressive tap numbers as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Who doesn't love a good tap number? Psychos. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you ever seen someone sadly tap dance? Can't happen. No. no. Impossible. Unless you're me doing Wonderful Town when I was so stressed. <laughs> Tapping on, like, the thinnest platform ever, like, oh, on the no. level of the stage, mm, was not was not a fun time okay so i now know of someone stressedly tap dancing <laughs> but in rehearsals it was great it was a dream until you saw the set and you were like oh i may die exactly exactly so an amendment to the if i mess this up no one dies <laughs> no. 
And I feel like there's so much we've lost in the dance world in terms of like what we're communicating with our expression, mm-hmm. what we're supposed to be telling the audience yeah. with our story. Yeah. Like it's not enough to just have a beautiful body that has the perfect lines and all that like that's great but if it doesn't have any substance then I don't want to watch it yeah um I spoke to Phil Chan the other week and he said something great which is that we're not making ballet for the czar yeah (laughs) which I'm like what it's so true we're not ballet for lots of tiny czars that's not (laughs) you are one one millionth the czar (laughs) no aren't we all (laughs) we all thank you for chatting with me absolutely um the only other thing that i wanted to mention is um i recently read a book that is a perfect um depiction it's fiction Mm -hmm. about the ballet world and all of that and it's called the ballerinas and it's Mm -hmm. by rachel i'm gonna butcher her last name koelpke dale yeah um but it's such a good story and it's about three friends in the um paris ballet school yeah and who get in the company and the story of what happens to them. And it's it has a very similar storyline of what happens with how they're treated by men and how they realize that once somebody leaves the ballet world, like what the real world is like. Yeah. Well, I will I'm gonna offer you a, a book recommendation in return. Um, Swan Dive by Georgina. It's a whole thing in the book that people pronounce her name wrong, and I don't know how to pronounce it. Georgia Pazikunichi. It's not in front of me. It's it's not in front of me, but she wrote Swan Dive, um, which is about her experience at the New York City Ballet, and it is not flattering to the company. Yeah. But I yeah. can't read. I feel like once once people get out of that company mind frame, mm. how toxic they will realize that that whole culture is. Yeah, let's let's build some non-toxic ballet companies. I feel like that's the takeaway. Please. Yeah. Let's build some non-toxic ones and get rid of the toxic crap at the top of the other ones and just burn it with fire and build it back up (laughs) burn it all with fire see i i want to go the other way i want to build some non-toxic ballet companies so that everything so that people see people in the ballet world see what it can be and that those jobs start to exist and then these big companies have to compete with better work environments yeah yeah 
And then we can burn it all with fire. No. <laughs> We're not advocating arson. Leave your family company not. alone. No, no, we're we're only advocating the really, really, really toxic. Yeah, people. it's metaphorical arson. Yes, of the <laughs> structure of the system. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. It's been great chatting to you. Um, thank you for yeah, having me. Not doing arson. Um. <laughs> Go, go out into your day and do some metaphorical arson, I guess. That's <laughs> something non-toxic. Metaphorical arson. <laughs> That's the takeaway. Don't be toxic. Treat people like people and don't do arson. <laughs> do you want to tell us who you are? Yeah, I'm Violet. I'm Grammy's sister. So, so we have known each other ever since you got me a little teddy bear as a being born present. I don't remember doing that. I think mum did it on your behalf. Yeah. Sounds like something I'd do by a mum. Yeah. I mean, newborns are notoriously bad at organising presents on their own. Exactly. Even, Even slightly older babies, I feel like if like if Callie was gonna get us a present is our two-year-old niece, it would be like a stick. Or a rock. Or a bug. <laughs> I got you a cockroach! Oh! Thank you! Okay, so I have a question for you. If I were to tell you that the alto section of the choir was full, and you either need to sing with the mezzos or the tenors. <laughs> Where would you sing? Um, it depends. Yeah. If the part that I'm singing affects what gender I'm playing, I'd sing with the mezzos and I'd struggle and I'd practice yeah that. Um, but otherwise I'd sing with the tenants yeah so so you're you're definitely a low alto yes I think we looked it up and I'm a contra alto based on my range yeah which is actually I've I've learned very rare most people most women are mezzos or they're sopranos um yep. Yeah, most people can sing above middle C. Sing above middle C. <laughs> Just much further than that, and I'm struggling. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And and you're not a belter, are you? Not really. Not really. In the shower, yeah. It, I mean, I mean, we Where... all have that kind of belting confidence in the shower. Exactly. It's about bringing that out of the shower into. Or a road trip. You know. On a road trip, it's true, it's true. You get some, some belting on road trips. So what do you think about the roles available in musical theatre? Um, the short answer is they make me want to cry. <laughs> um, is the long answer just you crying? <laughs> I guess we'll have to see. No, uh... 
I think there's very specific reasons that I have to think that that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me but about they, that? Yeah. So, although most people in musical theatre sing soprano or mezzo, um, yeah. I would argue that most people are probably more alto than they think they are. Okay. Or at least they're mezzo. They're not like true sopranos, even though most theatre roles are written for true sopranos and they really emphasise, you know, those... Yeah, there aren't, there aren't a lot of people who can sing notes with sixes next to them. Yeah, that's <laughs> not very many. No. Um, and I should and clarify, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm a soprano and I'm a belter, so like... I could I could play Hope or uh, Reno if anyone's casting and anything goes. Can you though? Yeah. I'm working really hard on my tapping, Violet. Okay. <laughs> recently, so, you know, might need proof later. But anyway. Pardon? Um might need proof later. Haven't seen your tap recently. Oh, um, this is this is so off topic, but I've started taking some online classes with a group out of the UK. And what's happening in the UK at the moment is essentially a revival of the 2011 Broadway Anything Goes. So I have spent two weeks learning that tap choreography from a member of the cast. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And you actually mean that, despite <laughs> your no, no, I think that that is one of the coolest, like, shows and dance routines that exist. Strongly agree. Extremely difficult. I've done minimal amounts of dance and tap dance. Um, and, you know, the confident part of me that belts in the shower and on road trips is like, oh, I could totally do that. I could totally do that. Part of me is like, yeah, I would probably break something. Yeah. Yeah. It's also I would probably break multiple things. Yeah. Also, a lot of tap classes that you do, this is so off topic, are they're very focused on like rhythms and on your feet and all this. This routine is peak cardiovascular, just dying. Oh, yeah, I get, like, breathless watching it. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's from the trying to belt along, Violet. That's the problem. No, no, even when I stay silent it's and I just watch the, like, the tap intermission bit with all the spins and the the wavy arms and legs things. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm talking about. That I... bit. I'm out of breath watching it. I'm like, that's yeah. so hard. Yeah. So, so how many... What what are the alto roles in musical theatre? Um, Reno. Mm. Sort of. That's a belt. She's a belt. But that's that's alto still. Most altos learn to belt. That's fair. That's fair. Um, if we're going contra altos, one of the fates in Hades Town. One of the fates. Yeah, the one who plays the accordion, I'm pretty sure is a contract. Okay, all right. So yeah. I'll loan you my accordion, so and then I think it's 
mezzo and soprano. Yeah. Like, yeah, thanks. Um, Nancy and Oliver, I believe, is an alto. Yeah, that checks out. I th- and not a belter for, for oh. most of what she sings. Yes. And oh, then- and um, I forgot the obvious one. Eponine? Eponine, um, Eponine, the famous alto. <laughs> the one famous one that everyone knows. She's an alto. Yeah. Um. Then Anna leaves. Yes. In six. Yes. Yeah. There's three voice types for women, and out of the six of them, one is an alto. Yes. To be fair, everyone else is a mezzo-belter. There's no one's a lyric soprano. Oh. Uh, um. What's her name? Seymour. Seymour. Seymour definitely gets closer, but. He's closer, yeah. Yeah. But you still gotta have a. You gotta belt that. Whatever. High. There's a high belt in there. Yeah. Um. I don't know any other, like some, sometimes the mum or the grandmother. So you, you were going to like really come into your own. When I'm later. (laughs) 60 year old Violet, wait, get ready for it on the musical theater stages. She'll still be lying to herself about her tap dancing ability. Only now she will actually break something. They don't expect the mums or grandmothers to tap dance that's way too hard they're frail limbs with that's true i played lady harcourt and i was not dance there this is harcourt in anything goes and i was not on stage i had run off in a huff (laughs) was that mrs harcourt though or was that just you running off in a half the line gets blurry with you know runs off in a half or like Lady Bracknell sweeps indignantly from the room. I try to make all my exits like that. Yeah. Which means I need to, like, start stuff sometimes so that I have something to sweep indignantly. Yeah. From. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So not a lot of alto roles is what we've established no there's really not a lot there's a couple in opera but even then the the bulk really are mezzo roles or soprano roles or in musical theater really there's alto roles that belt there's belters and there's high belters and there's sopranos (laughs) yeah Yeah. the three voice types (laughs) I think you mean belters, high belters, and cassette? Like, yeah. Yeah. Lyric soprano. You've got belters, high belters, and Christine. Yeah. Christine doesn't need to belt. She needs to do something else entirely. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote that show for his girlfriend at the time. For her to play Christine, and everyone was like, "No, you have to have a, you have to have a audition." But he'd written in notes that 
he was like, well, no one can sing that. It's just her. Yeah. Well, I thought that was going to take a Mozart turn with the far least was written for this student of his. Oh, he... not far least. I think it might be Queen of the Night. Aria. Oh, there was something. No, no, it was piano student. Oh. And then, um, yeah, she didn't want to marry him. She was like, well, I guess I'll make it hard now. And so the beginning is real oh. easy. And then it gets really hard. No, the the other Mozart story is um, there was an opera singer who was quite pretentious and he didn't like very much, but she had a habit of sticking her chin up when she sang high notes and her chin down when she sang low notes. So he wrote, I believe, the Queen of the Night aria, which goes... Yes. So that she, her head would bob up and down and she'd look silly. <laughs> the sass of Mozart. Uh, oh, it's something else. It is something else. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so... There's not very many roles in musical theatre for someone with a, for a women with low vocal ranges. Or yeah. really for men with low vocal ranges. I think about the no, there's actually I'm thinking you've got Hades in Hades Town. Yeah. Um you've got I know the creature in Frankenstein is a base. Yeah. Uh, Audrey two in Law Shop. Yeah. Is a base, although you don't get seen on stage. You're That's only right. half of it because... Yeah. So anyone with a lower vocal range than the rest of their gender just gets... So what we've learnt is people with high voices are better. No. Yeah. Cool. What That's a really good takeaway from this. Low voices are underrated. Section. Don't have a low voice. Or there are no roles. <laughs> yeah. Alternate title for this section, Remy bullies Violet. What's changed? <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that the fact that there's no low roles is a bit silly especially as musical theater gets more like integrated into people's musical vocabulary yeah as you know with spotify and youtube and uh like TikTok. The way that, and tiktok and the way that um a lot of musicals are getting made into uh movies or vice versa um people know these musicals and yeah they know the songs you know uh, where there is an alto? Cats. Oh, thanks. I, <laughs> I don't care. That what are you complaining not... about? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, Cats is a terrible example. But with a lot of um, these musicals as they get made into movies in particular. Yeah. Um, then they make it to things like people's playlists. Yeah. And 
some playlists it's fine if you can't sing along it's fine if you've got you know last midnight from into the woods and it's just impossible because I saw time um if it's just something you're listening to but on the playlists where it's like you know your carpool karaoke thing let's all sing along <laughs> your sing-along ones why the hell would you put songs on there that you know that you're not gonna be able to sing along to. yeah and you've got like you got like a group of people in the car and it's like you julie andrews and Elphaba. <laughs> yeah well okay maybe we might you know put something ridiculous on there but oh yeah other <laughs> if i'm not in the car with some amazing singer I'm probably not going to play something that is hard to sing along to. Yeah. Some people just um, sing badly. Yeah. <laughs> the peril yeah. of being a music student. Oh, I know. Just... Even the ones that you sing badly, you want it to be like... Possible. Comical badly, not like I'm trying to sing along and I'm just failing because it's yeah. too hard. Yeah. Lena Lamont. Sorry, I'm just suggesting roles you could play. Oh, okay. In Singing in the Rain? I no. So there's Kathy Selden, who does Good Morning and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I do the whole night through is dream of you. And then there's Lena Lamont, who's the other girl. Not Remy. She sings a great song. What's the matter? She doesn't sing it. Does she? Oh, she does in the stage musical. She sings a song. She has a song, oh, okay. which is deliberately off key. Yeah. Oh, I could probably sing that. Mm. Oh, no, I couldn't. I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I can't do it. I can't, I can't bring myself to do that. No. So, yeah. If you think about the fact that most people can't sing any of the like no one's gonna be able to sing the operatic soprano bits just cut that out very few people will be able to sing contra alto bits sure that's yeah. weird i'm weird i get it but lots of people can sing a normal alto or a meso part yeah and that like so you want okay. more musical theater written within a normal tessitura Because if I'm in the car and I'm like, oh, guys, musical theatre is so cool. Let's listen to this song. And then you all sing along to it. Sure, there's like the comedy of trying to rap Hamilton as, you know, people who have never rapped before in their life. Yeah, my introduction to rap was Ed Sheeran. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Absol- absolutely. I I have a. F- uh, it's not. I. I have something to say, and it's not good news. I don't think musical theatre is going the way you want, because as singers get more technically proficient, songs in revivals get taken up. Yeah. Yeah. 
So back we to know the that you just want to cry. <laughs> but we know that it can be done, that there's like, you can write a musically interesting, accessible part. Yeah. We see, I'm thinking specifically in Canto. None of those parts are ridiculous. In the... Those songs can be sung while you're in labor. I feel like there's a story that goes with this. Oh yeah, Stephanie Beatrix re- re- Beatrice recorded her her big song as her contractions were beginning. Okay. Um exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so and I would say Louisa is a close-ish to alto. Okay. That doesn't no, I have a confession to make. I haven't seen the strong one. Th- that muscle. The buff girl? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, muscle is an alto. Yeah. Ish. I, I, would, I think she's alto. Yeah. I can see it. So that's what makes me think that she's <laughs> alto. <laughs> yeah. And on the plus side, there's a wealth of tenor parts for you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the encouragement, Rem. You are more than welcome. <laughs> thanks for coming and change me. You're welcome. <laughs> thanks for bullying me for you know, 10 minutes or whatever. Oh, any time. I know. Hi, my name is Jennifer Paldino. I am an actress. I live in Northern New Jersey and I met Remington through Broadway Weekends at Home. Amazing. And you are here to chat with me today about Brecht. Yes. So um, in last episode, we covered one of, uh, one of Balanchine's works with this ballet company that lasted exactly one season. Um, and he did, it was a work with work with Brecht and Kurt Weil and Lottie Lenyer, where there was a, a sung part of it and a danced part of it. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it's lost now, but but that was, um, I believe that was Brecht and Kurt Weil's last collaboration. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's where the Brecht comes into this. All right, wonderful. I am excited to chat yeah so you did Brecht in college I believe yes um my freshman year of college my very first show that I ever did in college was a bright room called day which (laughs) was not written by Brecht it was written by Tony Kushner the playwright of Able to America but it's heavily influenced by Brecht and so in jumping right into this show I think it was about two weeks after I started college, we instantly got cast in the show because it's the first one up. So it's like you crash through the end of the rehearsal process and it goes up around Halloween. Yeah. Which is not a long time. Yeah, I was thinking, I was like, but school starts in February, which which makes Halloween very, very far to the end of the year, but I'm on, uh, I'm, on I'm in opposite land, so. That's right. <laughs> All I had experienced was um, high school theater where you have like an entire semester to do a show and this process was so short and so intense. I was, yeah. It was like being flung into a different world. Mm. So um, 
this show, Tony Kushner was super inspired by Brecht. And so our director sort of gave us a crash course course in what Brechtian theater is, um, how he wanted to distance the audience from being able to like escape into the show. He wanted them to always be aware that they're watching a play and they're not there to emotionally connect with any characters and sort of sit back and relax. They're there to wake up and pay attention to an often political message and yeah. leave the theater, you know, ready to change the world, ready to jump in and do things, not so much say, oh, I love that one. I love that one character. I laughed so hard until I cried and then you go home and forget it. That was yeah. not what he was about. And so, Bright Room, our production of it had all of these elements that constantly reminded the audience that they are watching the show. Yeah. There's a scene in Bright Room, a character invites the devil into the, their apartments. The show centers around a, um, a group of artists living in 1932 Berlin. Um, okay, as, I, can see, I can see where the Brecht influence comes in. Yes. <laughs> as Hitler is coming to power. And there's a scene where a character invites the devil into their house. The scenes are constantly interrupted by Villa, a woman living in 1980s America during Reagan's term as president. Mm -hmm. And she constantly stops the action in 1932 Berlin to talk directly to the audience, something that happens a lot in Brecht's work, mm -hmm. to often to yell at the audience or to Reagan himself. Um, make connections between what was happening in the 30s to what was happening in the 80s. Yeah. I've never seen a show like that. I'd never experienced like, the, first wall, the fourth wall. Yeah. And it was so exciting to experience something like that. At one point, I had to get out of my costume to point a spotlight director at, directly at the actor playing the devil. We had lights and stage equipment sort of inside the world of the play in yeah. addition to the actual stage equipment backstage for the audience to see it was really fascinating that's that's so cool so the 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 brechtian alienation techniques there's things like um sign cards with uh they're probably bigger than that like big sign cards with what's going to happen in a scene actors sometimes change character like they'll swap so they play different characters we had instead of placards we had projections on the yeah. walls of the theater for every the new version of placards <laughs> yes exactly the new age yeah um and then later you did do a play by brecht it did yes later in college a, um, a very good friend of mine, he student directed a show. He directed Caucasian Chalk Circle. Yeah. And this is outside of the college's main, main stage productions. And what was cool about this was it was site specific. Yeah. And so it was sort of a traveling production where he set up the frame tale in one location, all the actors became the people telling the story. And then it traveled all across campus. It started in, I think, the theater building and it traveled all the way through the academic center. We stopped in the student lounge to do a couple scenes. And there were people who would come to see the show who were following with us. And then there were completely confused students of other majors thinking, what is going on in H-Wing? This is why people think theater kids are in a cult. That and our warm-ups. Um, it necessarily helped the image, I have to say. No. <laughs> 
So, um, could you give me a brief rundown of what the Caucasian Chalk Circle is about? Yeah, Caucasian Chalk Circle tells the, it's a parable. It tells the story mm -hmm. of a peasant girl named Grusha who finds an abandoned child of a wealthy family when they had to um, flee their home. They left their son, Michael, behind. I think he's like oh, two years and she takes care of him, and it's the story of how she is a much better mother than his actual parents. Yeah. It comes to a head when the boy's birth mother decides that she wants him back. So she tracks him down, and it ends up in this court scene where the judge has a chalk circle drawn on the floor, and the child sits in the middle. And each woman is instructed to pull the child's arm until either one person wins or he will be hurt and hey if everybody gets half at least you've gotten half that's an even split who thinks is a great judge and what happens is grusha refuses to pull on his arm because she doesn't want to hurt michael and that is how he decides that that's that's really interesting because that's really really similar to um an old testament story where yes, king solomon. Yeah, with, with king solomon where these two women are like um, this is my baby, and she rolled over and killed her baby in the sleep, in her sleep, and they both say the same thing, and he's like, well, it's all good, we'll just cut the baby in half. And, and the real mother is like, no, just give her the baby, and he's like, you're the real mom. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's weird that there would be a, a kind of, the genius morality is assume that one person's just chill with with killing a baby exactly it's it certainly <laughs> takes everything to the extreme and i hope that would be, i would hope that, that that's something that the audience would catch on as well as yeah oh well this cannot possibly be our reality that's something that would never happen yeah yeah what was fun is we had one of our college students playing the child yeah Instead of what's often used as a doll or a child actor, we had a full-grown college student just like plop herself down in the circle and I'm ready to pull. It's quite funny. That that is always funny with um, having children when there are child characters in like university theater. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that, being five feet tall and being <laughs> quite young on stage. It's been much of my career. Super grateful for parts like that. Well, I, I mean, I think I'd be hilarious playing a child, but mostly if I was, because I'd probably be taller than the people playing my parents, and I just think that would be funny. Even funnier, yes. Yeah, that's hilarious. It's like six-foot child lumbering around. <laughs> you need to see Spelling Bee. Perfect Pardon? show. You need to see Spelling Bee. Perfect show. <laughs> um, so how much do you know about Brett's background? I'm so far removed from my college classes. <laughs> my theater, my theater history professor would not be super thrilled with me, but okay. it's it's boiled back down to the the very very basics. Yeah. Um. So Breck started writing in. I'll just I'll just do a little quick thing. Breck started writing in Germany during the 1930s when Hitler was coming to power, um, which is why you would you would use Brechtian theatre to talk about the 1930s in Germany. Um, and he, interestingly, is thought of as a theatre person, but a lot of what he wrote we would call musicals, like um, Throckney Opera, 
which has some very famous songs like Jack the Knife in it. That's a jazz standard now. He wrote a lot with Kurt Weill. Um, they ended up coming out to America and finding some reasonable, if not massive, success out here. It's been a staple of theatre programs ever since. Hmm. Yeah. And, and he was very anti-Wagner, who was the, the other, the big creative um, name in Germany at the time. Wagner wrote the the Ring Cycle, this big four... Operas, yes. Yeah, this massive okay. four opera series that you're meant to go you know, Thursday through Sunday, like a normal person. One of them on its own is five hours. Goodness. Like, what a, what a mammoth effort. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Bright Room is encroaching on three, and that felt Herculean <laughs> at the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You just have a theatre training program where you do increasingly longer and longer shows until you're doing the ring cycle. <laughs> it would certainly build your stamina. Yeah, you start with like one act and then... I like that. Work your way up. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the interesting things about Wagner is that the myth that Vikings had horns on their helmet comes from Wagner. Really? Because, yeah, so 1930s was, had a big rise in German nationalism. And historic Germanic people did wear horned helmets. So when Wagner writes this great epic about Vikings, they are changed to be more Germanic. So Vikings with horns on their heads comes from the ring cycle. Wow, I never knew that. Yeah. That's really fascinating. But Breck didn't like Wagner because all his theatre was too... You got too involved. <laughs> I can see why. I can see why. I remember in Chalk Circle, one of the things we did to keep in the, um, in the Breck tradition, which I thought was really interesting, was we recorded our lines at parts. At parts, we recorded our lines and they were played through a speaker as we mimed the actions that went along with the lines okay as distant as you can get it was that was very alienating <laughs> very much very much wow so what what do you think about brechtian alienation are, are you for it are you are you against it what's the vibe i am definitely for it now when I did Bright Room, I was so green. And as an actor, I had no idea how to attack a play that was not supposed to get the audience on the side of the people in it. Yeah. Um, it was so hard to get into the mind of a character that the audience isn't supposed to like. And not in like the, oh, we love to hate the villain way. It was like, yeah. you know, when getting attached to the characters wasn't the point. Yeah. It was very difficult to how to read the lines yeah especially since i know that even when you're told that you're playing a villain often the work that you do is to give this person a true motivation to be like i'm not just evil mcbad dude i'm i'm this character who has 
bad reasons for doing things, but reasons that are all pretty internally consistent. Um, but if you're just meant to play, like, the devil, or <laughs> e- evil, evil rich mother who, <laughs> um, you know, abandons her child and then goes, nah, I actually want it back. Exactly. I spend so much time trying to rationalize some of the, I guess, stranger moments in the show. Who did you play? I played Rosa Malik. She is a um, KPD officer who often checks in on the main character, Agnes, throughout okay. the show and eventually is attempting to convince her to leave Germany while she can before Hitler gets any more power and it's too late. And the ending is left open, so we don't know if she succeeds in convincing Agnes to leave. Um, It's a featured role. It wasn't super huge, but... Three minutes into college, it's a pretty pretty decent role for you being three minutes into college, so... It is, you know, I, God bless our director because she cast a lot of freshmen in that show. We were all very, very fortunate. And I had the blessing of not having to be alone in that either. I had yeah. other freshmen also in the cast who were acting alongside these incredibly talented upperclassmen and it created a really fantastic dynamic to learn from. Yeah. And having grown through that process, I wish I could revisit that show now. If I yeah. ever see the production of Bright Room or of Chalk Circle, I would leap at it because I feel like I understand more now than I did yeah. when I started. And I would, I would love to do that again. Yeah. My my kind of two Brechtian shows I want to do are Mother Courage and Thropni Opera. I think I think um, yes. Catherine or Katarina in Mother Courage would be interesting to play to play a character who's you know full and well rounded and says nothing. Um, and then I just kind of like the music in Thropni, so that's just the musical theater nerd talking. <laughs> We all have one, I believe, right there with you. Yeah. I mean, you'd be shocked if I wasn't a musical theater nerd. I would. I yeah. would. <laughs> like, what are you doing with your life? And then who are you in Chalk Circle? I was Grusha. I was Grusha. Um, oh. My director put a lot of faith in me, and it was really cool to be trusted with with that role. I hope I made him proud. It was a lot of fun. That's that's really incredible. Thank you. Thank you. It was I think it was probably the biggest role I had had to date and to be given that vote of confidence was yeah. really, really great. Especially gosh, especially how green I was in college. You put a lot of faith in me and I don't take that lightly. Um, who are the other favorite playwrights that you've got? Paula Vogel. Pardon? And Paula Vogel, hands down bar none. I love all of that woman's work so much. Anyone who knows me knows that I talk about indecent night and day. I would leap at the chance to be near that show, even if I'm <laughs> selling tickets in the box office. And I really love Amy Herzog which is another playwright that I um, learned about in college. We did The Great God Pan while I was there. And we had this fantastic class in college, Contemporary Women Playwrights, 
where all you learned about was really cutting edge female playwrights who were writing these like challenging, amazing stories. And I found all my favorite playwrights through that class. That was an amazing thing that my college did. Yeah, I, I'm gonna be honest, I don't know that many, that many like contemporary female playwrights. It's, I mean, I hang out in, in classical theater a little bit more. I just keep dropping parts of my pen because I'm, <laughs> I'm doing great. But I do remember reading some Sarah Kane and that's, yes. I think I got 10 pages into Cleansed and then I realized that I had a weird pain in my shoulder and it wasn't for me. We had to read 448 Psychosis for contemporary theater and theory, and theory and it's not an easy read. It's not, Sarah Kane is not for the faint of heart. No, it's not like reading, you know, the importance of being earnest or something. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I got far enough in to know what was really going on. I just know there were a lot of graphic depictions, uh, graphic descriptions of torture. So I was like, not, right. not on board. Not my vibe. That's for another time. Maybe. <laughs> That's for someone else. Respect the heck out of her. Not for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there are people who are, you know, trying to do new creative things, and I am going to cheer from another room. <laughs> and that's the beauty of theater. There's room for it all. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for, for coming and chatting with me. Thank you for having me. I had such a fabulous time.